Hello everyone, welcome to the Roots and Bloom podcast, the podcast encouraging self-reflection as a tool for growth and flourishing. I'm your host, Sarah Lisak, and thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen. Oftentimes, when we talk about sitting in our feelings, the feelings we're referring to are the negative ones. Sadness, disappointment, apathy, frustration. We tend to talk less about sitting in positive emotions, like acceptance, peace, hope and joy. Part of this is probably down to the fact that we as humans are primed to pay attention to the negative. The negativity bias, also known as the positive-negative asymmetry, is a likely result of evolution. Earlier in human history, paying attention to the bad and dangerous threats in the world was a matter of life and death and so those who were more attuned to these dangers were more likely to survive. Paying attention to the negative is a way the brain tries to keep us safe. But at this stage of human history, and especially for those of us fortunate to live in societies that are not under immediate threat of large-scale violence and its ensuing traumas, this wiring can have adverse effects in our ability to truthfully assess people and situations. We may find ourselves remembering an embarrassing moment from years ago that still makes us cringe, while our friends have probably forgotten all about it. We ruminate over one person saying they didn't like our work, even though the majority did. And when we argue with our close friend, parent or significant other, their flaws suddenly seem so much greater than all the things we love about them. In general, when we try to make sense of the world, we tend to focus more on the negative than positive, and tend to perceive the negative news as being more truthful. This means we learn more from negative outcomes and experiences and make decisions based on negative information more than on positive data. We remember painful experiences better than positive ones, recall insults better than praise, and respond more strongly to negative events than to equally positive ones. This negativity bias seeps into the most harmless interactions, and it's additionally shaped by our own fears, anxieties and insecurities. Just the other week, the head of the company I work for messaged me on our work communication system, and simply from him saying, Hi Sarah, I braced myself for negative news. I feared that I'd done something wrong, and began trying to recall all the possible things he could be pulling me up on, even though I couldn't actually think of anything. A few seconds later, his second message arrived, and of course, it was nothing. He was only asking me if I was available to work another shift. I felt so silly and wondered why my immediate interpretation went to the negative. Personally, I know I have a bit of a habit of being a perfectionist or at least quite hard on myself. And though I've made great progress in creating healthier habits, this moment revealed how ingrained this thinking still is and how willing I was to accept a truth about myself, that I always mess things up in the end, that wasn't a truth at all. So you may experience an offhand comment about your work as affirmation that your efforts are never good enough, or an argument with a partner may falsely prove that no one ever really understands you and that you're right to expect the worst from others. And in these cases, what we experience as being negative fits within the wider stories we tell about ourselves. One unfortunate consequence of this priming is that we end up stealing our own joy. If we're so used to looking for the negative... What space is there to find the positive and joyful? And when we do have positive experiences, how can we ensure these hold the same or even more weight than the negative? 
In a wonderful essay called Joy, Zadie Smith writes about the elusiveness of joy and how joy is different from pleasure. In talking about her experiences of the club scene in the 1990s, she writes, It mimicked joy's conditions pretty well. It included, in minor form, the great struggle that tends to precede joy and the feeling, once one is in joy, that the experiencing subject has now entered the emotion and disappeared. I have pleasure. It is a feeling I want to experience and own. A beach holiday is a pleasure. A new dress is a pleasure. But on that dance floor, I was joy, or some small piece of joy, with all these other hundreds of people who were also a part of joy. From her essay, we learned that joy is an immersive experience, one that moves us past our own egos into something bigger, purity of connection or of surrender to the beauties we find in life, perhaps. But she also highlights that joy is something intentional. We enter joy, she says, and later in the essay, she recounts how easily we fall out of it and how quickly joy seems to dissipate. The psychologist Brene Brown says that the most terrifying and difficult emotion we experience is joy. In the same essay, Zadie Smith goes on to write... Children are the infamous example. Isn't it bad that the beloved with whom you have experienced genuine joy will eventually be lost to you? Why add to this nightmare the child whose loss, if it ever happened, would mean nothing less than your total annihilation? It should be noted that an equally dangerous joy for many people is the dog or the cat, relationships with animals being in some sense intensified by guaranteed finitude. You hope to leave this world before your child. You are quite certain your dog will leave you before you do. Joy is such a human madness. If joy is so terrifying, it makes sense that it's so difficult to access. Brene Brown says that we find it hard to soften into joy and whatever is the generator of our joy because we're so scared that it will be taken away. We'll notice that all seems well in our lives, or we'll feel overwhelming love for the people we care about, and suddenly an intrusive thought will come into our minds, telling us that it'll all be taken away. She calls this foreboding joy. It's our way of trying to dress rehearse and prepare ourselves for tragedy. But it's a flawed strategy. In an interview, Brene recounts the story of a man whose wife of 40 years died in a car crash. Speaking to Brene, he said, I wished I leaned more into the moments of joy, because not doing so didn't make it any less terrible. Like Zadie Smith says at the end of her essay, it hurts as much as it is worth. He said he used to approach his emotional life by staying in the middle. If things didn't work out, he wouldn't be devastated, and if they did, it would be a pleasant surprise. And this really resonated with me, I've often found that being in the middle feels like the safest place. It feels like a place where I can't really feel the loss of anything because I haven't quite allowed myself to be too invested. Historically, this approach has shown up most in areas where I more acutely feel a sense of risk and vulnerability, like in romantic relationships or aspirations I have from my career. And this corresponds to exactly what Brene Brown says. We lose our tolerance for vulnerability when we are scared of accessing joy. Of course, 
Just because you try to suppress the full breath of your emotions doesn't mean the wins and disappointments are any less real or experienced. You just end up trying to lie to yourself by denying the truths about what you really need, desire and feel. And because this is almost always unsuccessful, it ends up creating a real disconnect between what we actually feel, a massive sense of joy or hurt, and what we think we're supposed to feel, the neutral middle way. We respond by saying things like, I didn't even like them that much, or I didn't really want that job anyway, or find ourselves as observers of joy rather than living and breathing in it. Brene Brown says that joy and gratitude are inseparable, and more specifically that joy is impossible without gratitude. In her research, she found that joyful people also experience the shudder of terror and an impulse to brace themselves when they have a positive experience, But instead of leaning into this and actually holding back, they practice gratitude. They become thankful for the people and situation they find themselves in and try to take it in as much as possible. Gratitude is a practice that requires work, not least because of our priming for negativity, but also because of the socially media-driven age and capitalistic societies many of us find ourselves in. Renee's description of this for me is just so spot on. She says, in a culture of scarcity, we are chasing the extraordinary. It's all too easy to slip into comparison about what we lack relative to others that can lead us to overlook the many blessings in our own lives. When working with severe trauma survivors, Brene found that these people overwhelmingly missed the ordinary parts of life, the little things that are in front of us all the time not the extraordinary blips that social media or the influence age would have us think of the common standard of a desirable and fulfilling life. The work of gratitude can look like saying it, writing it down, making it your intention to look for it. And it becomes like magic. The more you look for it, the more you find it. And the more you find it, the more you will become of the thing itself. Joy. When I started doing this, I realised how much joy I get from showers. I love the warmth of water and the way it sounds like rain, one of my favourite sounds. It opened me up to be consciously grateful to have access to clean water and it made me think about all the things that had to be in place and the people that had to be involved just for me to be able to have this ordinary yet blissful experience. It sounds silly, (laughs) it's only a shower, you might be thinking, and in some ways it is. Maybe it is only a shower, but that doesn't mean that it's any less a valid source of gratitude, fulfilment and joy. It's about being willing to see things differently and trying to become more truthful. And since we're able to narrate the story of our life, why not rebalance the narrative and invest in a story of gratitude rather than the ease of negativity. So I leave you with a question today. How easy do you find it to find and sit in joy? So Words of the Week is a little different this week. I did write something... It's very short but felt complete, so I wanted to leave it as it is. But not to cheat you, I did also find another poem that I absolutely loved, and it really captures what we've been speaking about today, in terms of looking into things and seeing them for all of what they are, 
and in doing so finding the joy, the gratitude, the interconnectedness and sense of community among things. It's also a small tribute to the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Khan, who passed away recently. I've been really touched and moved by his work and his words and wisdom. And so I hope you enjoy the follow-up poem, which is also inspired by him. And so we play this game, the world and I. What I seek, I find. That was Ordinary Wonders by me. And the next poem is by Melissa Studdard called I Ate the Cosmos for Breakfast after Thich Nhat Khan. It looked like a pancake, but it was creation flattened out. The fist of God on a head of wheat, milk, the unborn child of an unsuspecting chicken, all beaten to batter and drizzled into a pan. I brewed my tea and closed my eyes while I ate the sun, the air, the rain, photosynthesis on a plate. I ate the time it took that chicken to bear and lay her egg, and the energy it takes a cow to lactate a cup of milk. I thought of the farmers, the truck drivers, the grocers, the people who made the bag that stored the wheat, and my labour over the stove seemed short and the pancake tasted good, and I was thankful. Thank you so much for being with us until episode six of the podcast. We only have a few more episodes to go, and as I mentioned last week, it would be great to hear suggestions from you, the listeners, of a topic that you would like me to cover in the finale episode, which will be episode eight. So do drop me a DM on Instagram at Roots and Bloom or send an email to rootsandbloom at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you soon and thank you again. Take care and have a lovely week. Bye-bye.